0: Uh, today, one of the things we're going to do is go over chapter two in the Bell workbook. Uh, so chapter two, the title of chapter two is Identify Psychological Research. Um, so in the key questions, it essentially says, here's what this chapter is going to do for you. How do you identify psychological research? Uh, what's a citation? Um, what needs to be included for a descriptive uh, account of the study, right? Um, What are the uh, research results? And um, then it goes over a little bit of the key terms in experimental research, which I hope is mostly a review for you of what we've already talked about, with the exception of one thing, which I'll bring up in a second. So what are the three key elements that you need to look for to know if something qualifies as what James Bell calls psychological research. Yeah. Hold on, what's that? I hear somebody say, citation. What else? A citation, what else, I'm sorry? Description. And results, good. Awesome. So, if you don't have all three of those, James Bell says it's not psychological research. What does he mean by that? It's not comprehensive. Why does it need to be comprehensive? Why can't I just say, um, I uh, ran an experiment in my introductory psych course and students uh, that sit near the window are smarter than students that sit near the door. So uh, so it doesn't, you don't have evidence to substantiate the claim, but why do you need evidence to substantiate the claim? Otherwise, you could just say anything about behavior. Um, so people say, you know, I listen to, I drive home, you know, I drive home uh, sometimes in the evening, and I turn on, I like to turn on the talk radio and see what people are saying on talk radio. And they say things all the time. I heard somebody on talk radio say... Uh, uh, what did he, what did he say at that time? Uh, he said something like, um, women just don't like sports. Right? So people, people make these kind of claims all the time. What's wrong with that? Well, it may, it may or may not be true. How do how do you know if it's true or not true? What's that? Well, it's stereotyping, but besides that, how can you know whether that statement is true or not? Okay. Yeah, evidence, good. So, in order to for me to be comfortable that this person's statement that women don't like sports is true, I need to be able to you need to provide me with some evidence. And uh, you know the uh, movie, what's the movie? Jerry Maguire, right? You know, who's seen Jerry Maguire? And so, yeah, so the sports, so, the, so this is, uh, Jerry Maguire is the uh, sports agent, right? And he's negotiating for his uh, for his client who's a football player. And uh, the football player uh, gets on the phone with Jerry Maguire, and I don't know, he's like, you know, Jerry Maguire's talking to him about, you know, how great it'll be playing with this team or whatever. And the football player says what? show me the money. Well, psychologists say, show me the data, right? Show me the data. Uh, if I can't see your results, if I can't see the data, I'm not going to believe anything you say, right? Which is infuriating to uh my fiance who uh, works in the metaphysical realm in her therapy work because I say, Oh it's great that you know you do all these great therapies with people and you heal them with energy and all this stuff, but where's the data? (laughs) You know? And she says, Well, I don't have any, it just works. I'm like, Okay, well that's fine. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. There's there's a few more choice words that were edited out of that conversation. Yeah. It actually she has. And so I say, well, I have a subjective feeling of well-being. So, you know, I, I might pay for this treatment, even if it is a placebo, it works for me. So, hey, that's great, right? Oh, dear. Thank you. <laughs> Good luck with that, yeah. <laughs> So, um, so citation. Uh, what are the important things in a citation? What do you need in a citation? Okay, so author, and a year, what, anything else? Uh Sometimes a page number. Uh, the citation only includes the page number in APA format if it's a direct quote. Um, if it's a paraphrase, then we don't have to include page numbers, but that's a minor uh element that you don't really need to focus on. So author and year, why? What is this good for? What does this point me to? Yeah. Okay, so for one thing, it establishes a little bit of authority, right? If I recognize this author as someone who I've already read previously, uh, has done research in the field, and I've been convinced by that person, then it can establish authority, but that can also be used uh, for propaganda, which we'll talk about in the next chapter. What else? Yeah, what does this do for us? Okay, yeah, so the, the research data that we collected, you know, in the 1930s, 1940s, although it might be interesting and it has a historical merit in terms of that it informed the research that came after it, maybe formed the basis for the theories that we're testing in the last 10 years, Research that's more recent in general has more authority in the literature. What else? Why? What does this point us toward? Yeah. So it gives, it gives credit. What else? You're missing... Good. So the idea with the, with the citation, and this is um, the in-text citation, we'll call it. In-text citation points us to the reference, right? And the reference has what in it? Has these things. What else? No, the reference. Good. What else? The source, we'll call it. So whether it's a a journal article or a book. So, page numbers, okay, so now, if I see something within the text of an article, I can go back to the original, read it myself, and guess what? Make sure that the author who paraphrased that paraphrased it correctly and here's a scary story. Fortunately, I think the processes we have in place help eliminate this. Uh in, When I was in graduate school, um, I was asked to review articles for a journal, the Journal of uh, uh, Political Psychology. And um, I, got a, I got an article to review, and I was reading the article, and this is called Peer Review. Whenever you want to publish something in what's called a peer-reviewed journal, which has more status than, say, a magazine or something that doesn't go through this process. uh I submit an article and it gets sent out to three or four reviewers who are anonymous, right? But are who are experts in the field typically. So this uh so what'll happen is these reviewers will read the article and they'll recommend either that it get published without revision, that it uh that it be revised for publication, or that it just be rejected. So um, so I uh, I was reading this article and I saw uh a paraphrase, and then I saw my uh, research advisor was uh, cited for the paraphrase, and I rem- and I went back to the references and I looked at the article that he cited, and I had read that article, but I hadn't read what he paraphrased in the article. So then I went back to the original article and I reread the article, and I couldn't find what he said in the article. I went back to my advisor, you know, down the hall from him. I went down the hall and I said, um, do you think you wrote this in that article? <laughs> Is this what you said in that article? He's like, it was like not even close, right? So a huge error in paraphrasing um, can be made by people, you know, and if I wasn't that familiar with Peter Sudfeld's research and his articles, I might not have caught it as a reviewer, and it might have gotten published. So um, in order to be con- uh, in order to be confident for one thing, I have to be able to go back to the original source and check it. For a second thing, if I want to use what's in this article as a basis for my own research, right, I need to be able to go back, say I want to find out more about what this study was about. I have to be able to go back and read the original study if I want to cite that study, right? I can cite that study, I can cite that paraphrase, and say cited in this original article, right? Um, I mean the 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 paraphrase, but that doesn't have as much authority again as citing the original. And you can't cite the original unless you've actually read it. Otherwise, you run the risk of uh, republishing this person's misinterpretation, right, of the article. Yeah. Sure, yeah, so yeah, and in the most in the for for the most part, it's not an intentional misrepresentation of the original research, right it's you know someone's interpretation that might be slightly skewed by their own experience or they may have just misunderstood the article or they just may have cited the wrong article. You know, maybe um, that article they actually meant to use a different citation, who knows, yeah. So this allows us to go back to the original, uh, which is important um, uh, for us to be confident in what's being uh, stated there. Okay, so what about the description of the study? What does that have to have? Okay, so what the sample was or population. Okay, and what, what you say how it was performed. Yeah, so I'll use a you know, shorthand for that, which is methods. So uh, methods typically says, uh, here's what we did and here's how we did it, all right. Uh, what else? Um, that's gonna come later, yeah. Anything else go in there? That's mostly what it's gonna have. Um, um, Sometimes, yeah, sometimes the description of the study will have uh, background information, but usually what it'll have is um, that background information will be um, included in the introduction to the article or something as opposed to describing the actual uh, research here. Uh, okay, and then the results, what are the results going to have? Show me the data, right? What are the, a- what is the actual data that resulted from this study? Uh, what else? Uh, so it could talk about the variables, but more maybe how the analysis of the data was done. Yeah and um aside from that that's about it you could well usually it'll come uh sort of as part of the results but uh typically it'll it'll sort of come as a sentence that'll come after the description of the study and after the results it'll say what you know how does this study help support the argument that i'm making right Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. The results are essentially what you did in the conclusion to your lab exercise that we did. When you wrote up your conclusion, you were essentially writing up the results, although you probably didn't, you know, you didn't have enough, uh you know, you don't have enough data analysis experience to write out the percentages and stuff like that, but maybe you did. Maybe, um, yeah. So, um, Okay so the question is uh, if essentially does publishing in psychology follow the same procedure as publishing in the other sciences? Yeah? Uh, there's a couple of ways to do it in APA format. Typically, typically it'll come last in the sentence. But there are ways to um, finagle it. Yeah, because I was saying it here. Um, so you could say, for example, Leighton. Yeah, 85. Um, Leighton wrote blah, uh, blah, uh, blah, 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 and then in parentheses, 2006. Yeah, and then in the book, it was be. Yeah, or you could do Leighton, 2006. Yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of ways you can do it. It's generally the form um we try to avoid this form of using the author first because the attention should be on the research and not the author. Okay? This gives this puts the author prominent in someone's mind and it's actually one of the ways you can use uh a prominent author to kind of as almost yeah, as almost like a um uh as a propaganda technique. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's just the style they have in there, yeah. It's not, that's not, you know, it's, I don't think that's his intent with this, but yeah. So, um, so then you've got, in this chapter, it says, what are the key terms of experimental research? And we've talked about everything in there already, with the exception of what? The thing at the end, limited circumstances. So... um, one of the things that we like to talk about in research is what problems we had in the study, right? What were the limitations of the research design that uh, didn't allow us to really do what with the data? What do we want to ultimately do with the data? We want to replicate and we want to generalize. So, you know, some of the problems in the study will keep this research from generalizing. And so we like to, at the end of the study, acknowledge that there are problems in this research, but it's still important because it adds to the uh, basis of knowledge, right? So uh, what were, for example, some of the limitations or limiting circumstances uh, in the lab experiment we did here in class? One subject, can't generalize from one subject to any population, right? So the sample size was too small with that so we uh, we were talking about the idea that in one case the arm was resting on the table in the other case the arm was uh you know was on the side um and so and it was and uh we had some problems with the procedure not being specifically um uh uh prescribed ahead of time, yeah, what else? Okay. Yeah, not actually, yeah, it was just actually that, uh, it was the first time I'd used that software in a few months, so um, I was just kind of trying to remember how we did the the data analysis, but yeah. Okay. So the, in the data analysis, again, uh, we didn't really specifically described before the study how, you know, how I was going to choose what areas of the uh, of the graph to measure in terms of mean uh, strength, right? So these are all limitations that are important because they limit the generalizability in the case of um, one, one person, but they also are things that someone else who wants to follow up on this study can correct Right, we can help. Our mistakes can help someone else avoid them in the future. Right, so we want to always publish what we think we did wrong that might have influenced the results. Right, so that's limiting uh, circumstances mostly. Um, okay, so 2.2, exercise in thinking critically. So it gives you this um article called the bystander effect by Ed Jones 2002 Journal of Social Psychology. I don't think this is a real article. I haven't tried to look it up to find out, but uh you know, one of the things that uh James Bell will do is he'll give you these articles and he intentionally writes errors into them, right? So it would be very hard to go out into the l- research and actually find a badly written article. They don't they don't pass uh, peer review and get published usually, so hopefully. So uh, this is an article that describes um, basically um, what happens when uh, people need help, and what are the factors that influence responding. And this data is actually, the data that's actually cited in here is is correct. So he wants you to list all the citations uh, by sentence. So what do you get? Yeah, two, uh, Latine, Sorry. okay, what else, five. sentence five, what was that, Rodin, what was that, 69, eight. eight, good, Latine, 68, right, what else, Twelve. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's Rodan. I think it's probably just Rodin. Uh What else? Twelve. What, who was that? Billy Haven. Sixty-nine. What else? Long. What year? Any others? Fifteen. What else? Any others? Is that it? Anybody get any others? Okay. Uh, so let's look at these. So number two, uh, Latane and Darley, 68. Uh, so the sentence is two, Latane and Darley, 1968. Okay, easy enough. Uh, then number five, Roden. In a second study, Rodin, 1969, had male college so-and-so. That's easy enough. Eight, Darley and Latin A. Eight, Darley and Lahtane, 1968, had subjects participate in a group discussion. Twelve, Piliavin. However, Piliavin, 1969, okay. Fourteen, Long, 89, uh, fourteen, Long, 1989, explained. And Bills, 92, uh, Bills, 92, thought an important difference. Okay. So what's the easiest way to find a citation in a paragraph? Just look for the year and, par- and look for parentheses in general. Those are usually indications that there's a citation there. Yeah. Okay, so that was uh, straightforward enough, except for one thing. How many of you said number two and number eight, Latine and Darley? Yeah, it must be, a lot of people will do that. Um, guess what? Those are probably two different articles. Um, order of authorship matters. Okay. So I have, uh, I have a research, I have a book chapter actually. I have a book chapter and the references, uh, Sudfeld, Layton, and uh, Conway, right? Uh, 2006. Okay, so um, the thing is that the first author is what matters. First authorship is the coin of the realm, as you might say in science and psychology. Um, mostly you get credit for first authored publications. What that means is you are the primary source of the theoretical approach or whatever's new about what you're doing in the research. Mostly the people who come after the first author are people who are helping out in some way um, and contributing substantially to the research, but aren't like, you know, the theoretic, don't have the main theoretical ideas. In this case, Peter Sudfeld, his theoretical approach to what we were trying to understand in this article was the approach that we took. So he gets first authorship. That's easy. This is really a crapshoot whether you get second or third or fourth or fifth. um, Sometimes it'll have to do with how much of a substantial contribution you made to the article. How much of it did you write? How much of it um, was your original ideas? Versus, um, you know, summarizing research from the past or something. So, um, so order of authorship matters. We might have also have published a second paper this year. Sud- uh, Leighton, Sudfeld, and Conway, 2006, and these are going to be two different articles, most likely. Okay. So um, so these are most likely two different uh, articles. It's probably not an error on the part of the author. Um, okay, so number two, list the sentences for the psychological research, then the researchers and the year. So uh, let me write those down. What'd you get for those? Two through four, good. Let me just write. I'll just write the sentence numbers. What else? Five through seven. Five through seven. What else? Eight through ten. Eight through ten. What else? Twelve. Twelve. What else? Anybody get any others? Fourteen. Okay. What else? Any others? Fifteen. Do so you want to put a question mark after that? Okay. All right. Uh, any others? So uh, two through four, um, does, the question here then is, does, do sections, sentences two through four, include all of the elements we need to identify psychological research? Does it include a citation? Yes, Latin and Darley, six J. we already talked about that. Does it include a description? Why is that a description? What does it have in it that the description needs? It needs the meth. It has the methods, and the sample. Good. Essentially, that's what you need. And what in there makes the results results? Seventy-five percent. It gives us numbers. Um, and tells us what the results of the subject of the study were. Good. Uh, five through s- now, uh, five through seven has the citation. Wrote in sixty-nine. Uh, has the description. Um, yeah, male college subjects. Um, heard a lady in distress. She fell off the chair and screamed loudly for help. Has the result. 70% of the alone subjects helped. Only 20% of the subjects were in the presence of another helped. Good. Eight through ten. Latin A, Citation. Had subjects to participate in a group discussion in which another subject appeared to have seizure. Uh, description. Uh, again, more description. The subjects either thought they were in the discussion just with the seizure victim or thought that others were present in different rooms. Results. 85% of the alone subjects helped while only 31% helped when the subject uh, thought that others were also listening. Good. Uh, 12. in 69 found that, so it's got the citation, now we have the results. 95% of the time help was given to a man who fell to the floor of a subway car when a number of bystanders are present. So it actually tightens things up. It gives you the results and the description of the study in one sentence, which is really nice. Um, Yeah, the bystanders in a subway car, yeah. So 1214, long 89, has a citation. Explained that the bystander hypothesis means uh, that the presence of others decreases actual helping in a crisis. Description? No, not so much a description. We're not talking about the subjects. We're not talking about the method. It's actually um, It's actually analyzing other research. Yeah, and there's no results, right? Uh, 14. Yeah, 12 is good. Uh, 15 Bill's 92, what's that missing again? Yeah, it's really his interpretation. So again, there's no, uh, there's no description and there's no results. So according to, uh, uh, James Bell, that's not psychological research. Yeah. Good. Um, what about 11? Nobody said 11. 11. Oh, okay, we should have said so. Don't don't feel don't be shy to say it even if nobody else says it. It speaks to the core there necessarily, but it still did, uh, really general, Okay. Uh, does it have a first of all, three three things. Does it have a citation? It's not it's not psychological research, then. Uh yeah, but it's Ed Jones's interpretation of eight, nine, and ten, right? There's no description, and there's no results. No uh again, no description, no results, yeah, yeah, more of an interpretation, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, so any questions, ideas about that? All right, let's talk about um, chapter three. I'll get you um, sort of primed for chapter three. Chapter three is gonna ask you to think critically about secondary sources in psychology. And he's gonna use a four-step procedure and chapter three is going to start you with the first two steps. The first two steps are identifying the source, where the information was published, Um, and so it'll give you a little bit of practice in identifying journal articles versus books and how you know that. And then step two, reading to understand. Now he's going to introduce a few new topics here. Uh, So what he's going to introduce here is the idea that there's a central idea to a uh, research article. And this is kind of the grand question or the grand theme that this article is going to explore. Right? Um, then he's going to talk about the idea that there are key points that help support that central idea. So you might think of the central idea as the architecture of a house and the key points as uh you know the foundation and the framing and all that that holds it together, right? Uh then he's gonna talk about something called misused words. Misused words. And he's gonna talk about three words in particular. What what we'll talk about in ter- he's going well let me tell you what he's going to talk about uh random proves and average and so um, misused words are words that could possibly mean um, a lot of different things or maybe don't really do what they say they do so, when we think about misused words, think about these as sort of um, uh, overstatements. So, when we talk about random, uh, there are a lot of different ways that things could be random, and you can say random, but how do you really know that it's random, right? When I when I selected a subject from this classroom for the experiment, uh did I use a random procedure? Do you remember what I did? I had one person select the first digit and the second another different person select a second digit. I didn't tell you sort of what I was doing in the beginning, right? But next time I do it, you'll be wise to it. So the second person could actually influence which person gets picked. So that really wouldn't be random, right? But in the first case, it probably was a pretty good random. But I won't be able to know that unless they tell me what randomization procedure that they used. So usually what you're looking for is a description. Um, It needs a description of what the randomization was. Now, in real research articles that are gone through peer review and are published by people that are academics, we generally trust them when they say, I did a random sample and random assignment. But for the purposes of James Bell, go along with his little story here and um, uh, that'll work. Proves. Uh, Psychological research almost never proves anything. The findings of psychological research support a theory, perhaps, but rarely is that theory ever proved and become a law, essentially. This happens more in some of the physical sciences as opposed to the social sciences, almost never in the social sciences. Why? Why is it so hard to prove things in psychology? Because there's so many possible intervening variables that are going to affect the results. You know, things that I never thought of that could affect the results that I can see create variability between the conditions. If there's no variability, within the, I'm sorry, within the conditions, if there's no variability in the 500 mile group and the 3,000 mile group, then I know that I've taken care of all the other possible variables. But we never find a, never, rarely find a condition where there's no variability, yeah. Sure, so differences, yeah, differences between, yeah, differences between populations, right? So, proves is gonna be a misused word. Average, why is average a misused word? It's vague, right. Why is it vague? What what could it possibly mean? Okay, wait a minute. So there's different types of averages, like what? You remember? The median, the mean, and the mode are all measures of central tendency, which are all averages. When we use average in sort of common parlance, in our everyday speech, we typically mean the arithmetic average, right? So we take all the numbers, divide by the number of cases. But in science, we have to be much more precise when we say average, because what we really say when we say average is central tendency. And a a median is a perfectly acceptable average, in fact, it's a better average sometimes than mean if you have extreme outliers, right? Mode is a perfectly acceptable average, uh, particularly if you've got a lot of sort of um, things fall into neat categories. Or like um, when I do a survey, I might have you check off um, either disagree, uh, disagree strongly, disagree, agree, agree strongly. And I might be looking for the mode, which is the choice that most people took, right? And that's a completely reasonable uh, thing to use in certain interpretations. So, misused words. And then he's going to talk about another idea. And he's going to talk about propaganda techniques. Now, the, there's, you're, gonna, you're gonna be confused between two things: propaganda techniques and misused words. And the real one of the key differences is that uh, where misused words are an overstatement or perhaps um, a misstatement. Uh, Propaganda techniques rely more on emotional appeal to advance the argument and to convince someone rather than logical uh, thinking and logical writing. So instead of presenting the data and letting someone, you know, accept your conclusion based on their interpretation of the data, uh, a propaganda technique will say, you should believe this because everybody, everybody knows it's true, right? So we're in the middle of a campaign for the presidency of the United States and you're seeing a lot of propaganda techniques. While you're reading this, think about what you're seeing in the ads, think about what you're seeing on the news and the sound bites and how those don't give you the information you need to make a decision logically. They're, yeah, they're appealing to your emotional uh, decision-making processes to try to convince you rather than give you all the information. There's a couple of reasons that they do that which are uh, which are dealt with in social psychology but when you watch a debate and both of the candidates are going back and forth and they're stating facts about the opposite person. Is that propaganda or is that um that's a good question. So if you watch a debate and they're kind of going back and forth and they pull out statistics about the other person and give it, and then they pull out statistics about someone else and give it. Um, mostly, it's uh, mostly it's sort of propaganda in the regard that they're going to present the data that supports their argument, but they won't present the data that refutes it. And in scientific writing, we present both sides. If we don't present both sides, when it goes to peer review, somebody's going to go, uh, you know what? Um, there is other research that shows the opposite here. So, yeah, so the peer review process takes care of that. Yeah, but in, in it is a form of sort of misrepresenting the truth by omission, right? So, in a lot of ways, it, and that's one of the things you're going to struggle with in interpreting this Chapter 3 stuff when you do the exercises. Is it a misused word or is it a propaganda technique? Sometimes the line is very confusing. And um, sometimes you'll find words that you think are uh, a misused word, but maybe a propaganda technique and vice versa. But don't worry about getting it wrong because you learn from making mistakes. So, um, you know, make your best judgment. And when we come back and talk about uh, exercise 3.2, uh, we'll actually go through, actually have you get together in small groups and work out the answers yourselves and figure out where you are having problems with um, interpreting these things, which is fine. Yeah. Play. So, yeah. So look for is the uh, does the author does the author's tone tend to be you know um, tend to be uh, uh, intentionally leading you in a particular way rather than presenting the data and then making a conclusion, right? Maybe data is omitted because it helps um, avoid the uh, problems of uh, refuting data, yeah. Okay, so that's Chapter 3. Um, that won't be for another couple classes, so, but I wanted to get you. This is something that always comes up, and so I wanted to give you that background before you actually do the uh, exercise. Anything else before we take a break? Oh yes, I'm sorry, uh, pass those uh, exercises forward and I'll pick them up at the front of the room. It's about five of, so uh, please return here at about five after and we'll pick up talking about memory. Okie dokie, we are back. And better than ever, what is that again, yeah uh, those of us those yeah memories yeah ah! <laughs> so those uh those of us who are uh, hello, hi, those of us who are um sort of outside the traditional college age um, know that uh, memory does decline with age, so uh, you'll forgive us our transgressions as we get older, please. Um, forgive your parents. They know not what they don't remember. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so memory. Uh, memory is a really interesting phenomenon to study. Uh, one of the things that we'll be talking about and you'll be reading about is the idea that memory is not always that great. Um, and, um, and it's especially disturbing in the context that, uh, one of the main basis in our justice system for, um, you know, deciding, uh, innocence or guilt or not guilty or guilty is what kind of testimony? Eyewitness testimony, right? And what we'll find, and what you'll read in the research, is that uh, our memory for events uh, can be strongly influenced so that we misremember something based on things that happen after the event or just our ideas about what should have happened in the event. Uh, it also can be... Uh, a memory can be actually created... That didn't exist at all in the first place for an event that never happened. So um, memory is a really difficult thing uh, to rely on, especially as you get older. All right. Um, so let me uh, let me find out how you're doing on uh, memory. So I'm going to give you a brief memory test. Here's what this test will involve. I'll show you a series of words and i would like you to remember as many of those words as you can uh without writing them down please and um, then i will show you a list of words and i'll ask you which of those words were uh in the list in the words that i uh that i'm going to show you here that you'll remember okay so ready here we go So uh, I'll ask you then uh do you recognize any of the following words as one of the words uh in that list of words based on your memory of those words night how many people say yes uh everybody uh okay uh relax anybody see that no just me okay um, sleep uh one how many people didn't see it just raise your hand if you didn't see it one two two okay so we've got about uh, almost 30 students here so about two or three out of 30 about 10 percent fall who saw fall nobody okay and dark who saw dark uh, one person maybe not right he's sort of halfway there okay all right uh So here's the good news. You were correct about uh, night. It was there. You were correct about relax. It was not there. You were correct about dark. It was there. You were correct about fall. It was not there. But all but three of you, 90% of you, saw sleep. You remembered sleep being there, but it really wasn't there. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll tell you what words were there. Rest, sheet, snore, dark, bed, wake, walk, alarm, dream, nap, and night. So. Um, so why is it that so many of you saw? the word uh, sleep. So all the words were connected to sleep and they all activated what we call a schema about sleep. It activated your memories of things that might be related to sleep. And um, in a lot of ways, your memory, your recall of things is influenced by by the ideas that connect everything together, right? So um, so that's just one example of how your recall of information can be influenced by just the context. You were just given a context of words, sleep-related words, and it brought back a word that wasn't even there at all, right? Sheet is similar, yeah, yeah, good, good. So, you know, maybe you, you were remembering the words based on the sounds of the words, and so that's why I put in some that began with "s" and I put in a lot of five letter words because that's one way I remember I remember words so yeah, so um these are all ways to influence people's memory of things, right um so the fundamental question for memory then is what what we'll talk about today is what are the processes that we use to uh, make and store memories, and i 'll talk about each of these processes in turn. Um, first comes encoding. you don 't get memory without encoding it. What does it mean? what does the word encode mean? Encode to put in code to sort of to write it in, to kind of change it to bring it in and alter it and transform it. So in a computer, uh, the the CPU of the computer, you know, the main computer unit, doesn't know anything about what's going on in the world. It can't remember anything until you type it in, right? And so the encoding process, is, process takes the, um, you know, the uh, kinetic movement of your fingers on the keys and translates it into signals that the computer can then remember. In the same way, the encoding process takes information that we experience, transforms it, and makes it possible for our brain to um, store it, right? So storage is the second uh, process. So we have to not only bring the information in, we have to store it away and keep it. And so in a computer, when you think of storage, you think of what kinds of things? RAM, the actual memory, that holds the programs you're running or what you're typing in in your paper. But if you don't save that, it goes away, right? You turn off the power, it's gone. You've had that experience. Um, And if you save it, it goes where? To a hard drive or some storage device. Now hard drives are starting to become obsolete even. So um, so it goes to some storage device, right? Um, And so it's gonna be kept around for a while, yeah. So if you put your file in the wrong folder, you may have trouble finding it later on. Exactly. So storage can also have errors in addition to encoding. We'll talk about how the um, how we think memory is organized, um, but uh, it's really just a model. We don't totally understand it. But. And then the last part of memory is you got to get it out, right, you got to get it back. Um you've learned a lot of things. You learned a lot of things in chapter one. You can't remember a lot of the things in chapter one. I know that. <laughs> After you had the exam for chapter one, two, and three, there are a lot of things in chapter one, two, and three that you just jettisoned immediately. Not really. It's not exactly how it works. Um, but we'll and we'll talk about why you don't remember that stuff. But uh basically Um, errors in retrieval will sometimes cause problems in memory. So all of these processes can go wrong, and if one of those processes goes wrong, the memory is not going to work right. So there's a lot of opportunity for memory errors, right? Okay. Generally, memory works pretty good, but um, again, you're gonna have to be wary of all the possibility for problems. So let's talk about encoding first. When we talk about encoding, um, essentially what we're doing in encoding is we're preparing the information that we get from our senses or uh, from our um, emotions, right? All of this information, we have to sort of get it ready to be stored in either short-term or uh, long-term memory and we'll talk about those two types of memory in a second. How do you do encoding? You don't, you know, we don't generally think of it as a conscious process, but really it is. Yeah, that's really the only thing you can do to encode information for memory is rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it. And the more you do that rehearsal, the more it's going to be prepared and transformed and made capable for you to move it into memory, okay? And that rehearsal also strengthens the, um, what we'll call, associations between memories, and that's going to be important. We'll talk about that later. And so when we talk about rehearsal, there's really two ways that you can rehearse information. What are those two ways? Do you remember from the text? Um, maintenance rehearsal is the first one. And essentially, maintenance rehearsal is repeating things to yourself. So uh, when you learn something relatively simple, like I tell you, um, meet me in my office in Social Science 215. I'm in cubicle uh, H12. And so you say, okay, I'll see you there. And all the way walking over there, you're probably going, uh 215H12, 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 and what's that? I didn't hear that. So what if you do? Yeah, that's actually very effective for maintaining relatively short-term memories, right? It's like in a computer, you have to keep the power turned on. If you turn off the power, it doesn't get moved into long-term memory, into the, into the hard disk, right? So you keep that power on, you keep that repetition going. Um, and it's generally good for simple little things you have to remember. But guess what? It's not going to be so good for the question on the exam that asks you to identify the parts of the neuron and the processes of neurotransmission. That's really complex information. So um, phone numbers are a great example of maintenance rehearsal. When I need to make a phone call, uh, you know, one of the things I do if I'm gonna call somebody on campus, you know, I go into the PCC directory and uh I look up the number. And let's say I close the window for whatever reason, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember it's 4723. And so all the time between when I see it on the screen and when I actually dial the number, I'm going 4723, don't forget it, 4723, don't forget it, don't forget it, don't forget it, 4723. And um, hopefully I, I remember. And then while I'm dialing, I'm like, oh, but see, here's the deal. So I look up the number and 4723 and I get a phone call and I answer the phone call and I talk to the person, I hang up the phone, it's gone, right? Um, Elaborative rehearsal is much more effective for information um, that we're going to be doing long-term retrieval on, but it still relies on repetition. In order to remember stuff for the exam, you still have to go over it, and go over it again, and go over it again. Or, test yourself. That's another way to do repetition, right? Take the practice tests online, and that rehearses your knowledge. You go back into your memory, you retrieve that information, and you do that repetitive process. Um, Elaborative rehearsal relies on elaboration, which is building complex connections between ideas and concepts, right? What's that? Associations, yeah. So, yeah, 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 and how the operations work and how they affect other things, and you form these complex um, connections and associations. And what this is gonna form is something called long-term potentiation. Potentiation, does this remind you of something we studied in uh, neurons? Action potentials, right? Essentially, um, long-term potentiation says um, the more you do elaborative rehearsal, the stronger the connections between memories get, those neural connections that we think of, this is how we model it, between memories get stronger and stronger and stronger. The less you do this or the more you don't do it, the weaker and weaker those potentiated networks get. So they have the potential and you can increase that potential through uh, elaborative rehearsal. Um, no, not so much. Does it have to do with plasticity of the question? Uh, probably not. Although, um, plasticity, um, you know, plasticity refers to, broadly, the ability to adapt and change organization in the brain. And to that degree, yes, it does have to do with plasticity. But when you think about brain damage, not so much, yeah. Although, as I said, if you get a stroke, one of the things that plasticity will do is it'll help form those connections around that area that had the stroke. So, if you needed to, you know, Use that area where the stroke was to get the memory. You probably won't get it back, but if the memory is peripherally connected to that area, eventually you might um, you might recover it because of plasticity and the uh, the reorganization of the connections in that area. A couple questions here. Yeah, first, Brittany. So uh, so the question was: your grandfather had a stroke yeah. last Sunday. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and so he's in the hospital. He can't speak, but he he's fine. He can get up, walk around, do things. Right, so there's one specific area, probably what area, that's responsible for speech production? Like bro- maybe Broca's area, or maybe just the motor area that's involved with uh, vocalization, but... Um, uh, but he can move his jaw and tongue and everything, right? So it's probably not that. It's probably broke his area. And so, the, but remember, uh, and we'll talk about this next time, but there are two kinds of memory, too. There is semantic memory, which has to do with knowledge and language and stuff like that. And there's procedural memory, which has to do with things we do, like walking. Um, Moving around, driving, stuff like that. So there's a couple of po- possibilities here of what what is going on there. Right. Right. Because um, we do have isolated areas of the brain that are uh, that have to do with function. Now, what would be interesting is memory. How his memory might have changed after that. But yeah. Okay. Well, so I get an email the other day that said, Hey, are you a child of the 80s, you watch this first? And as soon as I saw word, I remember the shows aren't really So it happening. came flooding back. Yeah. So you never even about it for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's hard to know. Um one of you know, one of the things that ha you know, it has to do a lot with sort of selective attention, what you're paying attention to, what's important to you at the time, how easily things come back. Um there's a couple factors going on there. But um uh, you probably did form elaborative uh, rehearsed memories, uh, elaboratively connected memories. And so that's why you have access to them now. Uh, but why you couldn't at age 10, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I've got it all through these slides. I, I, somebody pointed it out the other day. Yeah, no, I don't think it is a Canadian spelling. I think it's just a misspelling. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's a Canadian spelling. (laughs) No, it's just my bad spelling. Yeah. Um, Okay, so one of the things that's going to be useful in elaborative rehearsal is something called chunking. And this is actually the technical term that's used in cognitive psychology. Um, What's that? Yes, it is preposterous. Um, So the idea with chunking is it's very difficult to remember a lot of information. So one of the things we do is we break down lots of information into smaller pieces that we can manipulate more effectively. And this has to do with the idea that we have, um, we can process seven units of information Plus or minus two, approximately, and so basically five to nine pieces at a time. So if I want to remember something that's, you know, ten pieces of information, I've got to break it up into pieces that I can remember. Uh, what do you remember that has ten pieces of information? You remember it all the time. What's that? Uh, phone numbers. Yeah phone numbers. And so um, your phone number is broken up into chunks. What's the first chunk? 503 in this area, which is the area code. Yeah, the area code. And that tells you something about the geographic area where the phone number is. Uh, It used to. Not so much anymore because now cell phones have all kinds of crazy area codes. We're moving away from that geographic designation. But so that's one chunk. What's the second chunk? The prefix number. So um, I know that the prefix number for the phone numbers at PCC is 977, okay? And I know that PCC is in Portland, and I know that Portland is in the area code 503. So now I've got six digits already. I've got four more to remember at the end, which is called the exchange number and so all I've got to really do is remember the last four digits of anybody on campus and I know what their phone number is if I want to dial from off campus, right? So chunking allows us to break this, these complex uh, elaborations into smaller pieces. So, you know, when you, when I, I did some chunking for you when we talked about um, the organization of the nervous system, the organization of the nervous system has several pieces, but I broke it down into groups of chunks of two. Uh, you know, the, uh, se- the central and peripheral. The peripheral has two chunks, right? The, uh, somatic and autonomic, good. And then the autonomic system has two chunks, the Par- sympathetic and parasympathetic. Good, you remembered more than I thought you would. So, um, so this chunking allows us to organize this memory in these elaborative complex networks, right? So these are, um, this is going to be really great for remembering stuff for your exam, elaborative rehearsal. Maintenance rehearsal is going to be really lousy because in order for you to remember everything for your exam, you will have to read your textbook and remember everything you have to remember and keep repeating it to yourself over and over and hope you don't get interrupted by somebody or something and, you know, stop your repetition and go, oh, no, now i got to start over. Right. Yeah, that would be bad. Uh, one of my favorite uh, comics, uh, one day I'm going to write a psychology textbook that is entirely Calvin and Hobbes cartoons because pretty much anything you need to know about psychology is in a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. And so, uh, so this is this is a cartoon about Calvin's dad, and it has to do with um, memory. And so, Calvin's dad's sitting in his chair, and he decides he's going to go do something, and then he gets up and walks over, and then he goes, "Huh." Why is it, and I can't remember what he was going to do, why is it that I can recall a cigarette ad jingle from 25 years ago, but I can't remember what I just got up to do, right? We've all had that experience of, like, you know, we're going to go do something. We're all charged up to do it, and we're on our way over there, and we might get distracted by something on the way. We see a picture, and we go, or somebody, or something, right? Woo! And then we get to where we're we're like, damn, what was I going to (laughs) do, right? So that rehearsal process must be getting interrupted there. He's not using elaborative rehearsal to remember what he's going to do. He doesn't have to because he's just walking over to do something. He's got, you know, only 30 or 40 seconds, so he can, you know, do that maintenance rehearsal. But if he stops doing that maintenance rehearsal, he's not going to do it. But why does he remember the cigarette ad jingle? So he did repetition and that repetition was in a context, right? It's connected, it's elaborated, and uh, it's over a long term. And one of the things that's important for you for when you study for your exams is what's called distributed learning, distributed practice. Don't cram for the exam the night before because you're not gonna remember it. Um, but if you do your learning In distributed chunks over the course of time. If you hear the cigarette ad jingle over and over, over the course of time, you're going to remember that stuff much more uh, on a much longer basis. So, 25 years from now, you'll go, "Wow, I can still remember the divisions of the nervous system. I'm pretty good." (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, (laughs) especially those of us that are getting older. Yeah. Um, Okay, so. Encoding, rehearsal, let's talk about uh, storage. So uh, Calvin's dad is gonna have to store this memory. And when we talk about storage, we divide storage into three different types of storage. Um, sensory storage or sensory memory, which uh, has to do mostly with vision and hearing. Um, working storage, which has to do with uh, information and thoughts that we're thinking at the moment. So what I'm saying to you is going into sensory storage and then moving hopefully relatively immediately into working storage where you can use it to think about what I'm saying and then you're going to have to move that thinking about what I'm saying into long-term storage so you can remember it later. Now, for most of you, you're sitting there um, writing these things down because you're going to have to do what with it to remember it? Rehearse it, yeah. So you're going to have to do elaborative rehearsal, so you want to remember what I was saying. It's very difficult to you know remember everything I said, so maybe you'll listen to the podcast later, and that'll remind you, or you'll look at your notes, and that'll remind you, and that'll help for the exam or whatever, yeah. yes it's a it's a very difficult distinction uh, between sensory memory and working memory or, or short term memory um, it's sort of a part of short term memory or working memory but it's distinguished because it clears out so fast um, and we'll talk about that in a second yes working storage and short term uh, storage are synonymous yeah uh, I don't know which what term does your book use? It uses short-term memory? Okay. The most cognitive psychologists use working storage, but um, short-term is fine too. Um, so sensory memory, as I said, has uh, two types. Iconic memory. Um, iconic meaning, what's an icon? It's like an image or a symbol of something, right? And so iconic memory tends to be visual memory, and it tends to clear out of memory very quickly because we're always getting new visual images, right, all the time. And light moves really fast, so we can process these visual images really quickly. Um, Echoic memory, echoic, echo, sound, auditory information. And so our memory for sounds uh, is a little bit different. It's still considered part of sensory memory, but the clearance rate is much slower. Where iconic memory clears out within about a second, uh, echoic memory takes uh, sometimes three, four seconds to clear. Um, because guess what? Sound moves a lot more slowly than light does and we receive information about our environment, not always immediately, but sometimes in a delayed fashion because of the sound, the rate of travel of sound, right? So if I'm talking, you know, if I'm making some noise, if I snap my fingers, I'm hearing the echoes and the reflections of that sound. And so I can tell something about my physical environment without even looking at it, right? but I need to keep that information around for a little while so I can process it. It's also useful because words, for example, can't always be said in one second, right? Some longer words you have to keep around for a little while before you can process it in working storage, right? So so this uh, slower clearance helps us to deal with the the properties of sound that are different from the properties of uh, light and vision. Um, so aside from uh, sensory memory, now let's talk about the two storage, uh, working storage, or what is called in your book short-term storage and long-term storage. Um, two differences, the capacity. Working storage is very limited. It stores a relatively small amount of information, basically those chunks that we talked about, right? And um, whereas long-term storage tends to be relatively unlimited capacity. And I'll talk about that in a second. We have very fast access to working storage information. Um, when I'm doing a math problem, I'm keeping the math problem in my head in working storage memory while I'm solving the problem. right? But it takes me a while to get out of long-term memory the process that I need to solve the problem, right? Um, very short duration to working storage memory, um, somewhere around 20-30 seconds maybe, whereas uh, long-term storage uh, basically you have memories for your lifetime. Uh, so those things stick around a long time. So examples of working storage is the current thoughts that you have, um, you know, the ideas that you're thinking about, the things that I'm saying right now are moving into working storage, and you're going to decide whether you're going to process process them into long-term storage or not. In this case, you've got your notes. You're going to go, okay, well, I don't have to really process it into long-term storage. Plus, by the time I'm done with one or two sentences, you've got to get that stuff Gone because you've got another one or two sentences that are gonna have to go into working storage. So this is a sort of a flowing process of memory. It's not like, you know, it goes into ser- sensory and then it kind of moves over into working storage and it sits there for a while and then it moves over into long-term. This is a more of a kind of continuous process. Don't think of it as so um, individual. So um, when I say the capacity is unlimited, that means that current research has uh, found no evidence of um, working storage memory capacity being um, in any way uh, limited. Uh, I'm sorry, long-term storage capacity. Um, that is, we, th- we, th- we have no evidence that you've ever forgotten anything that you've learned. What we have better evidence for is that you can't get to the memories that you have, okay? So that's why we say the capacity is unlimited. Um, All right, so how do you get to those long-term memories? Yeah. Smell. Smell. Good. And smell does what to memory? It cues it or triggers those memories, right? So you smell something that reminds you of something you smelled before and you get this flood of memories coming back, right? What else? Auditory, yeah, auditory signals, right? Um, you know, you hear somebody's voice. On the, you know, somebody calls you that you haven't thought about in a long time, and you get the memory of what they look like. You know, what you did with them. You know, what your association with them was. And these are all connections, right? So these triggers will will stimulate the connections between memories, yeah. So um so the idea that context memory is context dependent. The way you where the situation you're in when you learn something affects your ability to remember it in a similar kind of situation or in a different kind of situation. And we'll talk about that next class when we talk about uh, state dependent memory. I'm glad you brought that up. So let me uh give you a sort of uh ten minute Um, overview of how cognitive psychologists think of the structure of memory. And this is a model. This doesn't mean it's the, you know, the God honest truth. Uh, This is the way that psychologists try to understand how memory works. And this is called the uh, information processing model. And the information processing model relies on the idea that um, we have what are called nodes of memory. And these nodes of memory you might think of as um, pieces of memories or uh, ideas or images that you have in memory. And alone by themselves, they don't mean anything. What means something is when you form associations between those nodes and all of a sudden the associations start to build meaning between these discrete pieces of memory that we have. And so the idea here is if I remember, if I experience something like a smell, that becomes what's called a prime or a Q, and that triggers one of these nodes of memory, and that triggering of that node of memory causes the triggering of another node of memory. So all of a sudden, we get these what's called spreading activations of memories. So when you smell something, you get all this information back that is either centrally or maybe even peripherally related to what you smelled, or what you saw, or the voice you heard. Right. So you hear somebody's voice, you think about you know the job you had when you worked with them, and then you think about the other people you worked with, and then you think about you know the things you sold and how much it was overpriced, and all this you know all this crazy unrelated stuff comes back because these are all associations between um, between these memories. And so we think about, in the information processing model, we think about the idea that these complex associations are what give memories the richness and meaning that they have. Otherwise they'd just be little pieces of information that don't mean anything, right? So let me give you a bit of a sort of visual um, idea about this. Any questions before we do this? Hopefully this may clear up any confusion you have. so the idea here is that we have uh, nodes of memory. And so I might have a node of memory which has to do with the summer jobs that I had. Um, and I remember that I had, you know, maybe uh, three different summer jobs. I had a summer job working at Dairy Mart, which really sucked. And I had a summer job mowing lawns, which wasn't really that bad, but boring. And I had a summer job uh, throwing hay, uh, you know, taking bales of hay and, um, throwing them off of a truck, throwing them up about 10 feet into a barn. Has anybody done that? Oh man, that's worse than working in Dairy Mart. <laughs> it's exhausting and dirt and, it, this, and the hay gets in your clothes and it irritates your skin and, uh, and then you know, the twine just digs into your hands if you don't have gloves. And um, Yeah, um, yeah, my grandfather had a farm. so. Um, So I've got these um, memories, and again, by themselves, they don't mean much, but all of a sudden, now we've got these other pieces of information that are going to start connecting them, right? I've got a memory for grass and what grass is like. Um, And that memory for grass is going to wind up being connected to doing mowing lawns, but it's also going to wind up getting connected to the lawn tractor that I used when I was mowing grass and the same tractor I used for gardening. And um, maybe um, I've got nodes for friends that I have, and uh, my friend Wilbur, who's got brown hair, so I've got a node for, you know, people with brown hair. And um, I actually have had some girlfriends. Um, you know, uh, Becky was one of my girlfriends, not really, but um, <laughs> the names the names have been changed to protect the innocent, or not-so-innocent in her case. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so I've got all these kind of nodes. But remember, without the associations, without the connections, it's not going to mean much. So these associations are what are going to bring the richness together in terms of the memories that we form. So I've got associations between, for example, mowing lawns, um, because the summer that I was mowing lawns, doing it for a summer job, um, Becky was my girlfriend, right? And so the memory of mowing lawns and the memory of Becky might trigger my memory of girlfriends, which might go off and trigger memory of other girlfriends that I had. And so um, in this way, we think of the associations between memories as consolidation. And this is a word you'll notice in the textbook, the idea that um, we form these associations through a process called consolidation. We consolidate the memories. When you consolidate a corporation, right, you take a bunch of individual entities and move them into one entity. Um, it's the same way with memory. You consolidate or connect these things, and consolidation is one of the things that you're actively doing at night while you're sleeping. So that's why cutting back on sleeping to do better in classes to study more isn't necessarily a useful strategy, um, because uh, uh, those hours are not spent idle. They're actually your brain is working, doing things uh, uh, at night while you're sleeping. We'll talk more about that when we talk about sleep. Okay, so we've got these associations. And the idea here is, how can we make some mem- why, are some, why do some memories come back so much more strongly than other memories, right? And so this is the idea of long-term potentiation. So let's say I've got this uh, mowing lawn memories. Well, um, I've got a real strong connection between mowing lawns and grass because guess what? All the time I was mowing lawns, I was looking at the grass, I was smelling the grass, I was thinking about the grass. well, actually, I was thinking about Becky mostly, but um, you know, I was really, you know grass is closely connected and tied with mowing lawns, right? And not only during that summer, but forever after that, when I was mowing lawns, I was thinking about grass, and uh, no, okay, I won't go there. Um, and so um, so this is really um, it's created a very strong long-term potentiated link. That link is real strong. So when I think of grass, I think of mowing lawns. I don't necessarily think so easily about other things that might be connected. Um, For example, um, I might think about the lawn tractor, but unless I'm really motivated to think about what I used when I was mowing lawns, I might not make that connection. So this connection's real strong and it happens real fast this one is gonna take more effort to actually remember. And similarly, um, it may take more effort to remember Becky, but notice that's actually a little stronger than the lawn tractor. Um, yeah, um, Human beings are um, much more, you do much more elaborative rehearsal with human beings than you do with lawn tractors. We um, did much elaborative rehearsal together. Um, and so, um, So, but I've also got this connection to summer jobs, but again, that may not come back as quickly as thinking about lawn tractors. And it's gonna take me a while to get to gardening from grass, right? It's gonna take me more effort and more time to make that um, connection, but it's still there. So, um, as I said, in order to get to this memory, you need some sort of prime, some sort of cue to get into that network. Otherwise, the network doesn't get activated. And so that's the idea of um, of a prime and spreading activation. And so one of the things that's going to happen is maybe, you know, I'm walking uh, in my neighborhood and I smell somebody cutting grass and that becomes a prime or a cue for remembering grass. And then that's going to trigger mowing lawns and that's going to trigger remembering Becky and um, you know, hopefully I'm not with somebody else when I'm doing it, and uh, so these these activations get triggered, and that's really fundamentally how these associations are going to work uh, in terms of how you understand memory, and how you get these really complex, intensive associations back, so um, hopefully that um, sort of visual demonstration may help some of you who um, with the words, the words are hard to kind of figure out how they're how it works, how we think it works, but again, remember, this is based on models we have of memory, not necessarily you know, as I said, the god 's honest truth of how it works. We still don't understand how all these neural uh, processes work in detail, but this is the best model we have a uh, question from Remy first. Um, uh, So, no. So the question is, can you form associative networks that haven't been formed previously? You can, but it's gonna take you a lot of elaborative rehearsal to do so. It's more likely that you're gonna go through those um, existing elaborated networks, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, here's the other side of the coin with long-term potentiation. The more you use those networks of memories, the stronger they get, the more easily they're activated. The less you use them, the weaker they get, the less likely that you'll get those memories back. So so keep rehearsing, you know, keep rehearsing what you're learning. I'll see you on uh Tuesday and we'll learn some more. We'll test your long-term memory for reading quiz. Uh, right, that's correct, yeah. I'm doing something for another class. Uh-huh. If-